first reading this morning is Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. They travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. People came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. And our next reading is Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 
If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Good morning, everybody. A man falls down a cliff. I don't know which man or which cliff or how he fell. But some way down, he caught hold of the only handhold the entire cliff provided. A sparse shrub growing out of an otherwise sheer cliff face. Holding on, he saw that there was no way to climb back up and no way to climb down. He had to hold on for dear life or otherwise he would fall to his death on the rocks hundreds of feet below. Now the man had for many years considered himself an atheist, but as George Clooney says in one of his films, a man will cast about in a time of crisis. So he calls out in prayer, Dear God, are you there? Dear God, I'm sorry for ignoring you my entire life, but are you there? Dear God, I need help. Help me, for I do not want to die. I'm right here, says God. Always have been. Oh, that's wonderful, thank you, the man says. Will you help me? Of course, says God. What shall I do, says the man. Let go, says God. The man thinks about this for a minute and then says, Is there anyone else up there I can talk to? That's an old joke, and I've used it before, and I apologize. I'm almost certainly going to use it again. (laughs) I apologize for its cringeworthiness, but of course, I'm not telling you a joke to entertain you. uh, Rather, to provoke us all to careful thought. Uh, For today, we continue a series of sermons on applied redemption. How is it that people become Christians, and what that means? And today, we're looking at the idea of conversion. Now, conversion is a theological word. It's a word that theologians use, but it's not a Bible word. It's not a biblical word. You won't find it in the Bible. The word in common usage, of course, means to change one thing into something else. In theological use, when theologians use the word conversion, uh, they are referring to a spiritual term in which people turn away from faith in something other than Christ to faith in Jesus Christ. And as I hope to be able to explain, conversion is how we talk actually about two ideas in the Bible, two distinct but very closely related ideas, and they are faith, and repentance. Before we examine that in any detail, however, let's start by talking about what conversion isn't. 
being a Christian isn't simply believing in God. As the Bible says in the book of James, even demons believe in God and shudder. Lots of people, indeed, probably the overwhelming majority of humanity believe in God. That doesn't make them Christians necessarily. Being a Christian also isn't simply knowing the facts about Jesus. King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 knows all the facts about Jesus and Christianity, but he isn't a believer. And being a Christian isn't necessarily even knowing the facts about Jesus and knowing them to be true. Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8 knows the gospel and is utterly convinced that the gospel is true, and yet he doesn't respond with saving faith. And being a Christian isn't even knowing the facts about Jesus and knowing them to be true and assenting of them and approving of them. The demonized slave girl in Acts chapter 16 who follows Paul and his friends around shouting out, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. There's, there's no question that the inspiration for her behavior was satanic. She's not a Christian, even though she, along with Simon and many others, knows that the gospel is true. Nevertheless, in order to be a Christian, indeed, a person does need some degree of familiarity with the gospel message. They must have heard something. As Peter uh, read to us this morning as we started our service, as Paul says in Romans 10, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? As we, we saw two weeks ago, when we looked at the idea of calling, conversion usually requires human agency. We need to hear about God from someone. And two weeks ago, we considered why that is the case. And also, in order to be a Christian, a person must not just hear the gospel, but know that those facts are true. They must indeed give approval and assent to gospel content. But there's more that's needed, isn't there? And that brings us to the word faith. Faith, the final frontier. Whenever you see the word faith in the New Testament, the Greek word behind that translation is pistis. However, the Greek word pistis also means belief. It also means trust. It can also mean, in a political sense, allegiance. And so then whenever the word pistis occurs in the New Testament, the Bible translators have to decide about which of several English words best fits what the author has in mind at that point. And that might initially worry us because to us, faith, belief, trust, allegiance are four English words with four distinct meanings. Faith. What does it mean? Well, in our particular time and culture, currently I think that the idea of faith means an idea that is held supercritically, above criticism. An idea held above criticism is an idea held by faith, according to current usage. We might have faith in our football team. 
strong loyalty and allegiance and belief in their ability to overcome despite the decades of losing. It interests me that faith is an important idea in scientific circles. Um, several notable scientific discoveries came through scientists having faith in their theories. They knew they were right, even when the initial experiments were discouraging. They actually showed them that they were wrong, even though other scientists thought they were crazy. They persevered and eventually were able to demonstrate their theory was right. Faith in this context is not necessarily irrational, but it is necessarily non-rational. It is an idea or a conviction that is held, even in the face of evidence that tells you you're wrong. So then, if that's what faith means out there, if I was going to talk to someone or to a group of non-church people about my Christian faith, they might well assume that I was going to talk to them about ideas that were held supercritically, ideas that were essentially non-rational convictions, ideas that I held on to with allegiance and loyalty and would not abandon even if there was contradictory evidence. It is essential that we understand that this is not what the Bible is talking about when it uses the word faith. No, in the Bible, faith is a response to revelation. Faith is a response to hearing God speak. Faith is believing and trusting. It is a believing, trusting response to God revealing himself. If you trust and believe what God has said, then you will obey. You will switch allegiance and uh, your uh, obedience, um, even if the obedience you're called to is counterintuitive, or even you might have to obey when you don't understand or don't fully understand or intuitively want to do something entirely different. But you'll obey anyway because the one speaking to you is God. That is why the Greek word pistos serves so well. Faith is, biblical faith is, is hearing and believing and trusting and switching allegiance and obeying and serving. A new allegiance. That's what faith is. And that leads us indeed to consider the word necessarily, to consider the word repentance. Again, Comparing how the world out there uses the word with how the Bible uses the word may prove useful. Because in worldly terms, remorse and repentance are synonyms. They are pretty much the same thing. They have the same meaning. A journalist, for example, might report about a criminal trial. The accused showed no remorse. Or they might say, the accused seemed completely unrepentant and mean the same thing. But in the Bible, the two words are used quite differently. Remorse is sadness about wrongdoing. Judas Iscariot was filled with remorse, filled with sadness about 
his wrongdoing, about, about having betrayed an innocent man, Jesus, for 30 pieces of silver. In his desperation, filled with remorse, sadness over what he had done, he believed two things. One was true, one was false. He clearly believed that there was nothing he could possibly do to atone for his sin. He was right. He also clearly believed that the mercy of God could not possibly reach to him and include him. He was wrong. And we still see this kind of remorse um, often manifesting it as a refusal to receive forgiveness or even to imagine that it was possible. What Paul calls worldly sorrow. It's at work in the world and is a powerfully destructive force just as it was in Judas Iscariot's life. Worldly sorrow, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, brings Repentance, on the other hand, is something that, in the Bible, grows fruit. And what does fruit do? Fruit brings life. Repentance is something that brings life. And the Greek word, which is usually translated as repentance, is the Greek word metanoia. The word means, literally, afterthought. Meta, after, noia, um, thought or mind. But um, the way that the Greeks used it, the, the word meant change of mind or change of heart or possibly turning around. For indeed, that is exactly what repentance is. And more, to repent is to turn around, to turn away from sin, away from self-rule, from autonomy, from rebellion against God's rightful rule, to lead and direct our lives. To repent is to change our mind about sin, about what is sin. Having repented, we renounce everything that we now see is evil and contradictory to God's mind. We change our minds to make it just like God's mind, to, to match his views and opinions on everything. Um, I remember well, and, and if you'll excuse me, I'm, I'm, I'm about to use myself as an example. I do this basically because I think it's, it's, I'm, this is, I'm going to just say something that's common to humanity. Um, it's not unusual. I, I remember well that before I became a Christian, I knew that God existed. I've always known that God existed. I knew as a tiny child that God existed. Um, but that was a truth that I often suppressed within myself. It was something I tried really hard not to think about. I tried to purposefully distract myself with less worrying thoughts every time the thought of God intruded. I, I knew instinctively, I think, I knew instinctively that God wanted something from me that I did not want to give him. And that was me, all of me. And 
that was fearsome because actually I knew what I wanted, which was to be just like my friends and to live in a way that was powerfully, persuasively pleasurable, but also plainly wrong in God's sight. Uh, regeneration, the thing that we looked at last week, regeneration, something that God did for me, it changed that. Suddenly I understood the same truths, but completely differently. Suddenly the idea of ruling my own life was a terrifying picture of hell. The last thing I wanted was for me to have hold of the steering wheel of the car of my life. If things were to turn out right, meaningfully, purposefully, fruitfully, it had to be Jesus in the driving seat. But that also meant, to stretch the metaphor, me listening to and obeying his directions. And that's repentance. Turning from sin, a turning to Jesus. Away from self-rule to the rule of God in Jesus Christ, my Lord. It also means trusting him as my saviour. Trusting him to save me. Trusting in the gospel message. For sin and self-rule are a refusal to trust. And that's because sin and self-rule are about self-reliance. A virtue in this world. Death in the kingdom of God. Being repentant means believing what God has said about how he has saved me, which is his work for me on the cross. Jesus made atonement for my sin on the cross, paying the penalty I deserved. Yes, there was nothing I could do to atone. But yes, the mercy of God can reach even as far as me. And being repentant means trusting that. Trusting that I am forgiven. Believing that my sin is, by his mercy and grace, forgiven. Believing that God is merciful. Believing that God is faithful to his word, to his promises. And being repentant means trusting everything, indeed, that God has said. That we believe that actually Jesus is right about everything. And trusting uh, that the only way, therefore, to live is his way to live. And so in talking about repentance being trust, we've actually, you may have noticed, we've come full circle. We're actually talking about faith again, which is believing what God has said, trusting him and obeying. Now that we've thought about the biblical meaning of faith and repentance, I hope that you'll discover for yourself as you read the Bible just how frequently the Bible uses these terms to talk about what we would call conversion. Conversion in faith and repentance language. Here's just some examples from the book of Isaiah. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. 
from the book of Acts. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Paul, in the book of Acts, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So perhaps now we might reconsider that joke that I told at the beginning of this sermon. Yes, I, I know that it is only a joke and that jokes are jokes. Um, <clears throat> in what follows, you might think I'm taking the joke a wee bit seriously, but sometimes it's good to consider why jokes are funny, how it is that they function as analogies or metaphors, where they are true, where they don't hold true. And the most obvious problem with our joke this morning, if it was going to be used as a vehicle for discussing how God saves, is that there's no mention of Jesus in the joke. That, that's, not, that's, not a, that's, that's not that good, is it? Because God, indeed, as the joke says, God loves to reveal himself, that's true. And he is quick to reveal himself to those who cry out to him in earnest, that's also true. But when it comes to salvation stuff, to God saving people, the Father is always pointing people to his Son. And indeed, the Father has spoken from heaven, saying about Jesus, this is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. So that's perhaps where the joke falls down, but the joke succeeds, I think. And in my opinion, it succeeds powerfully in the way that it holds up to ridicule our human inability to trust God and to take him at his word. If God is all-present, all-powerful, and all-knowing, there's no need to be frightened of letting go. But obeying God in the context of that joke means trusting God whilst at the same time no longer putting trust in our own resources, no longer putting trust in our own understanding, no longer trusting in our own ability to save ourselves. You can do one or the other, but not both. And that's a brilliant part of that joke. Because uh, as in the joke, so in the gospel, we cannot be saved by God if we are trying to save ourselves. When it comes to salvation, God will not task share. When it comes to salvation, God does not help those who help themselves, who try to save themselves. What is realistic about the joke is that God's words, let go, are provocative. And the gospel is always provocative. Every single one of us must do the same thing as the man in the joke. If we want to be saved, we must let go. Out in the wilderness, bitten by a snake, 
don't worry, you've got time to make a decision, enough time. Uh, probably the venom, and venom wouldn't kill you instantly. You'd probably, I don't know, had 10, 20 minutes before you started vomiting and then lost consciousness. Uh, Moses had said, this is what the Lord says. Anyone who is bitten by a snake can look to the bronze snake on a pole and they will live. That wasn't a hard thing to do. In fact, it couldn't be simpler. There was no work to be done. Moses had done it for you at the furnace. All you had to do was to take God at his word. But it was confusing. Um, what, wasn't God against images and stuff? That, that, that bronze serpent, how is that not an idol? And what about the second commandment? We're not allowed to, 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 to worship idols. Do not make for yourself an image in the, the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the seas below. Um, uh, what about the golden calf incident? Um, we got into so much trouble about that. Is this a trick? Is this a trap? What am I supposed to do? And for many on that day, they'd have to let go of what it was they thought they knew if they were going to be saved. Jesus said, and we looked at the passage last week, Jesus said, I am the snake on a stick. Look to me. Couldn't be simpler. Work's been done for us already. But can a man really be God? Can God really be a man? It's all a bit confusing. Nicodemus didn't get it. And he couldn't be saved until he was prepared to let go of what he thought he knew and much, much more besides. And in the same way, all of us, at one time or another, we spend our lives trying to save our lives. And common sense and corporate experience provide us with all the answers that we need. How do we save our lives? Well, by making money, saving money, marrying well, eating well, good schools, best medical care we can afford, investments, holidays, insurance, etc., etc., etc. But Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The joke, I hope, was a suitable way into speaking on faith and repentance because if we think that the gospel is merely a call to acknowledge the abstract truth of Jesus of Nazareth being, in fact, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, uh, a tick, even if we approve of the mechanism of the cross, penal substitutionary atonement, and approve of all that, we still miss the point. Faith and repentance means letting go of everything in order to hold on to one thing. Or rather, it means letting go of everything in order to be held on to by him. Faith and repentance, the decision we make in order to enter the kingdom of God. Faith and repentance that becomes actually the only way of staying in it 
faith and repentance is conversion, certainly, but it thereafter becomes the occupation of a lifetime. The work of a Christian is to believe in the one whom the Father sent. In other words, the work of a Christian is faith and repentance, a constant turning away from sin and trying to save oneself in order to trust simply in Jesus and doing things his way. Discipleship is faith and repentance, and discipling others is leading them in faith and repentance. So then, I hope this has been helpful. Uh, One practical application of this is that all the time we have to fill out forms for the bank or the government or the ATO or for universities or schools or colleges or whatever, and sometimes they ask us religion. Well, we can all know this morning, when it comes to religion on the form, you can write Christian. And when it comes to occupation, you can now write faith and repentance. Conversion equals faith plus repentance. And we begin the way we mean to continue. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, uh, we thank you for the gift of faith, and this not of ourselves, it is from you. We do pray, Lord, help us in our lives this week to see clearly what it means to let go of trying to save ourselves, to remember by the Spirit and the Word of God what it is that Jesus is saying to us and do things his way. Thank you, uh, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus of Nazareth, Thank you that he he did the work in the furnace, on the cross, offering himself in my place, in your place, in our place, in order that we might be forgiven. Thank you for your forgiveness. If we haven't received that before, we receive it now in Jesus' name. And Lord, when we consider your word, help us to remember who it is who is talking to us. Help us to trust and obey. To God be the glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen.